Valerie's my mother's name. Rush is for white suburban boys. Anybody remember cassettes? My tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. Hey there, this is the Soundtrack Series, stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Dana Rossi. Coming up later on the show, Deputy Editor at The Decider, Tyler Coates, talks Taylor Swift and a bad breakup. Because, duh. I began to learn that summer what is evident now. Part of the human condition is to have an opinion about Taylor Swift. It is required To have nothing to say about Taylor Swift is to be inhuman. (laughs) I, on the other hand, was more focused on myself and the looming mood that hung over the 4th of July weekend, which was one of the last times we went up to Westerly that summer. My boyfriend and I had been together for just under a year, yet, yes, we were engaged, which hindsight proves, as it always does, was a big mistake. But first, of course, I want to talk about this. song ruined and i don't want it to be i i would prefer to go right on associating it with rocky three and the sun will just continue to rise every day but what if i can't what if going forward at least for a split second i hear eye of the tiger and then i think of kim davis doing that hands in the air andy dufresne just busted out of shawshank pose what if that's what happens always i can't have that and there's no lawsuit however awesome and Kind of overblown, but awesome. There's no lawsuit that's going to erase that image. We can't unsee it. We can't unsee the pose. We can't unassociate it with the song. Like how I used to associate Stuck in the Middle with you with riding around in a van with my friend listening to that over and over again. But then I saw Reservoir Dogs and now I associate Stuck in the Middle with you with getting your ear cut off. That. I mean, I seriously can think of a million, okay, probably more like like seven things just in my own life that going forward or at any time I would rather associate I have the tiger with than that woman doing a super creepy Liza with a Z. Two. All right. Two. That was two solid hands in the air references. All right. Anyway. When I was in first grade, I think it was, it was probably first grade, the local back-to-school supplies store. It was called Basics Plus, and they held a contest where you could win free school supplies or something like that, a gift certificate, something, if you colored the best picture of a dinosaur. And so you could pick up the picture of the dinosaur and take it home and color it and turn it in, and if you won, you would get a gift certificate or free school supplies. And I colored mine purple, and I won. And then I found out that I won because my mom was friends with one of the store owners. And then in fifth grade, we had to do these book reports on a particular person, and I picked Amelia Earhart. And I went all out. So I read a biography of Amelia Earhart, and then I went all out. I dressed like her. I got, I think it was probably just like we went to a thrift store and got me like a members only jacket, like something that could be short and that could look like, you know, a, an aviator jacket and the the shower cap on my head, like, you know, the close one and then the, the goggles and stuff. And I got a cardboard box 
that I, I hollowed out so that my legs could stick out the bottom. I wore it like an inner tube. And then I had another cardboard box that I cut up and I put the wings on it. So I had a little plane and made a propeller and stuff. And I sat up there and I gave my book report sitting in my little plane. It was amazing. And the thing was that we did these book reports, but it was a contest. And if you won, if you gave the best book report, you would get one night of no homework, something like that. And the catch was that in order to be eligible for that prize, you had to bring in the book that you were doing your report on. And so I do mine and I you know, think I, I did a really great job. And then another girl who was always getting the best grade in the class, she does her report on I don't even remember. All I remember, though, was it being whispered down the rows of seats at school that she didn't bring her book in. She didn't have her book. And when she returned to her seat, I knew I knew she was going to win. And so I, I, I turned to her and I said, did you bring your book in? Because I needed to confirm it first. And she was like, no, I forgot it. So when the teacher announced that Kelly, that was her name, was the winner, I put my hand right up and I was like, but she didn't bring in her book. And so by default, I didn't do homework that night. Then the next year in sixth grade, we did this thing where we had a track and field day that was sponsored and run by the students in the high school. And it was track and field type things, but nothing crazy. It wasn't like the hurdles and the pole vault or anything. It was just if you did shot put, it was mostly like, you know, throw a softball, whatever. And at the end of all of this, they announced the winners of each activity and you would go up to the, the booth and in the big stadium at the high school and you would go up to the booth, the announcer booth, and you would claim your prize. And they announce the winner of the 400 meter dash, Dana Rossi. So I go up and to the announcement booth and they present me with a little plaque and I say, I didn't compete in the 400 meter dash. And the high school girl, it was like, you didn't. And I was like, nope, but I'll take it. Then when I was in seventh grade, I played softball. I'd, I'd played softball actually since first grade because I was playing t-ball and then softball. But by seventh grade or so, I think maybe a little earlier, my dad was one of the coaches on the team and he would always be the third base coach. A little bit about me as a batter, I found swinging at pitches very, very stressful. So I used to love to walk. I would rather play the odds game that the pitcher was going to throw me four unhittable pitches rather than take a chance and swing at one that you know may have been between my chest and my knees. So that's what I would do all the time is I would just play the numbers game and try to walk as many times as possible to just get on base and, and then be able to take it from there. So my dad was the third base coach and he came up with this system. He told us that when we were at bat, if the count was three and oh, or three and one, we were to look at him. If he was not looking at us, we were to take the pitch. Even if it was coming right down the middle, take the pitch, don't swing. That was a rule, of course, I could work with. But if he was looking directly at us, three and oh, three and one, we had to swing if it was a good pitch. And here we are back to my issues because I didn't really know what a good pitch was. I'm short, I'm 5'2", I was even shorter then, and just like in a league of their own, I couldn't lay off the high ones. I love the high ones. And things that were probably at my eye level or my forehead level, I would think were at my chest level, and I would swing for those. So I had no 
judgment as to what a good pitch was. And I didn't like three and oh, three and one looking at my dad and seeing that he was looking at me. So one time I'm at bat. I think the count was probably three and oh. And I look at my dad and he's looking right at me and kind of with a smile on his face, which I, I think, you know, now looking back, it probably meant like, take a swing, Dana. God damn it. Like, I believe in you. You can hit the ball. You do during practice in the backyard and whatever else. You can do this. Take a swing. Get a base hit. You got it. And so I got back in the batter's box, shouldered my bat. Pitch comes in. I still don't swing, but it's ball four. So trotting over to first yet again. Yeah, these are mostly sports because in ninth grade, then I I stopped playing softball, but I played volleyball in the fall. And then in the spring, I did track and field. And when I say I did track and field, I really just I joined because my friend Stacy joined. And so we could hang out and go around and have our inside jokes and just laugh most of the time. So we could just like pretty much just hang out. That, that's all we wanted to do. But for the sake of looking as though I was participating, I threw javelin. I didn't do anything other than throw a stick. I didn't even do the other field things. You know, it's like track is all the running. And then the field stuff like throwing javelin, shot put in discus. I just threw javelin. I barely practiced. I certainly wasn't lifting. I was never working on form. None of that stuff. I was just running around with Stacy giggling. People are doing all kinds of activities. They're doing the hurdles. They're doing the the distance running. A couple of them were doing pole vault and the triple jump and the long jump and all of this really incredible stuff. And I was just running around giggling and occasionally throwing a pole. So we get to a particular meet and I'm up, you know, to throw the javelin. And I got lucky. The wind was blowing my way that day. I don't know what it was, but I managed to throw it about 90 feet, which for a 14-year-old girl was far. And I placed. I placed second in that meet. And for whatever reason, and I remember I did nothing. Everybody else on the team seemed to be working hard and doing multiple things. I was there dicking around. But because I placed in this particular meet, I lettered. Varsity letter in track. Freshman year. Because I got lucky once and threw a stick real far. Wow, I really hope now I don't get sued. Okay, but see, now I'm concerned that going forward, you might associate Eye of the Tiger with a visual of me wearing a members-only jacket and a cardboard box airplane yelling, fix, fix! You know what, though? Honestly, that's not my fault. None of this ever would have happened in the first place if Huckabee had, like, just picked high on you. All right, our story for this episode is from the deputy editor at The Decider, Tyler Coates. And it's his story about turning to music during a particularly bad breakup and being kind of surprised when in your breakup comfort music world of PJ Harvey and Liz Fair, you find yourself oddly putting your head on the shoulder of Taylor Swift. A couple of summers ago, I spent a few weekends in Westerly, Rhode Island, where one of my fiance's best friends owned a home. 
While we had been talking about getting married up there the following summer, the real buzz going around town was concerning Taylor Swift, who had recently bought a multi-million dollar mansion in the neighborhood of Watch Hill that overlooked the ocean right off the main strip that ran through town. At the time, I could barely name a Taylor Swift song. I'd heard one or two on the radio, maybe the one in which she realizes what the rest of us have known for years, which is that John Mayer sucks. <laughs> we didn't have to fuck him to figure that out. Despite my best efforts to strike up a conversation about any other, literally any other subject, it always came back to Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift looked too skinny. Taylor Swift was annoying. I can't believe Taylor Swift didn't think anyone in Rhode Island would care that she moved here. How dare she? One of the other house guests even suggested that Taylor Swift was sluttier than Miley Cyrus because Miley at the time had only had one or two high-profile boyfriends compared to Taylor's seven or eight, which is an interesting treatise on sexual politics coming from a man who was checking Grindr every four minutes so he could find a stranger to fuck him. I began to learn that summer what is evident now. Part of the human condition is to have an opinion about Taylor Swift. It is required. To have nothing to say about Taylor Swift is to be inhuman. I, on the other hand, was more focused on myself and the looming mood that hung over the 4th of July weekend, which was one of the last times we went up to Westerly that summer. My boyfriend and I had been together for just under a year, yet, yes, we were engaged, which hindsight proves, as it always does, was a big mistake. There's a picture of us from the holiday standing on the porch of an oceanside hotel, the Atlantic below us and our sun squinting as the sun set in front of us. I imagine that picture, which I purposely have not looked at in some time, and I remember how exhausted we both looked from another round of fights that seemed to ruin yet another weekend. We probably knew both, we probably both knew that the end was near, even though it would be weeks before my boyfriend told me he wasn't ready to get married, another few weeks before he suggested I move out of his apartment. At the time the photo was taken, though, I was trying to be happy, trying to look forward to the fireworks that would shoot off a barge a few hundred yards out into the sea, and trying to be excited about the party that was happening next door at Taylor Swift's house. We'd walk down to the beach just before that picture was taken to gawk at the group of young people in the distance, running around, swiping badminton rackets through the air and passing a volleyball back and forth. We were far enough away that we couldn't make out any of the faces, but there was a skinny blonde girl in a flowing red dress, and I wondered for a moment if that was Taylor Swift herself before my mind drifted back to the present situation, hoping that the inevitable was not about to take place. Of course, it did happen. I wouldn't be here telling the story if it hadn't. On the way home from a wedding in Minnesota about a month later, my boyfriend told me that he thought I should find my own place, and then I cried over a giant margarita and a Chili's at O'Hare during our layover. And our tears, my tears quickly turned to spiteful, angry words, knowing full well that fighting wouldn't make it any easier or make him change his mind. In fact, it only made him more certain that we should split up. And when I finally moved out of his place and onto a friend's couch on the Lower East Side, I was devastated. I was inconsolable, only able to feel sad and, or angry, nothing in between. I screamed at my mother over the phone when she told me that it would get better. It'll get different at best, I snapped. And I scoffed when my friends, I scoffed when my friends told me I had dodged a bullet because I felt like I'd been shot multiple times in the chest. I drank as much and smoked as much as possible in an effort to numb that pain, but it didn't seem to work. The only thing that seemed to help was listening to music, particularly songs about romantic disappointment in all its forms, sung primarily by women. There weren't any men I could bear to listen to. I didn't want to be macho and strong. I wanted to be as crazy as I needed to be, to sing along to P.G. Harvey or Liz Fair like nobody was listening and rip out my hair like nobody was watching. I tried to channel the anger I heard in Fiona Apple's Regret, the song from her last album on which she literally sounds like she's trying to rip her own throat out while describing her ex-lover's words as hot piss falling from his mouth. I sang Silver Springs at karaoke three times in two days. <laughs> 
picturing Stevie Nicks every time with her eyes locked on Lindsay at that reunion concert in the 90s, still haunting him after all those years, just like she threatens. At a wedding reception, a friend asked me how I was doing, and when I told her I was miserable, she replied, well, I figured. I got an email from Spotify that said, Tyler Coates has been listening to a lot of Joni Mitchell this week. <laughs> every time I thought I was getting better, something would happen that would set me back again, like an email from my ex saying he had found a scarf and a book I had left behind, and his insistence that he give it to me in person because he didn't want to go to the post office to mail me my things. There was a night months after the breakup when I had settled into an apartment. I told him how much I had grown, how I had recognized my own flaws and the mistakes I had made, and asked him politely to consider taking me back. He replied by revealing he had started dating someone new, apparently finding it vital to tell me that in person rather through email so I could feel miserable and cry alone at home instead of on a cafe in a cafe on Houston Street. And that's the last time I saw him because I cut him completely out of my life. I stopped checking the pictures he posted on Instagram, letting myself assume he was happy and enjoying his life instead of finding some confirmation of the fact. I deleted his number from my phone as well as every picture of us from the year we spent together. I erased him, but I didn't feel any better. I avoided everything we had shared together, refusing to watch any of the TV shows or movies we had both loved. I didn't want to be reminded of the entire year I had wasted with someone I thought I was going to share the rest of my life with. But do you know how hard it is to avoid Taylor Swift? It's very, very hard. Because there are three things in life that are inevitable. Death, taxes, and Taylor fucking Swift. <laughs> As such, I saw her on the Grammys a few months after the breakup, performing all too well. She sang at her piano, singing slightly off-key, because she's not that good of a singer, throwing her head back and forth, like frantically, while her band played behind her. And it was as if she was trying to mimic Tori Amos's more melodramatic stage moves. I didn't even listen to the words she sang as I watched. All I could focus on was that blonde hair waving in the fake wind created by the fans below her, immediately conjuring the image of the blonde girl in the red dress I had seen on the 4th of July while I was trying to distract myself from what was happening with my boyfriend. The day after, I downloaded the song and listened to it about 5 or 30 times. I can't be certain. It sounds so lame to admit it, but the sense of solidarity I suddenly felt with Taylor Swift went beyond the fact that I also had an adolescent crush on Tim McGraw, and I also dated a guy with the same name as me. I'd rationalized and validated my own crazy emotions as I walked through the slush and the snow to work, rode on crowded subway cars, or sat in front of my computer at the office with my earbuds in, feeling completely alone despite being surrounded by other people. I wasn't alone because there was someone else out there who knew what it was like to remember what was so great about our relationship before it was taken away from them. I felt, as Taylor Swift sang, like a crumpled up piece of paper discarded and left behind. Two years after that breakup and a year and a half of having all too well stuck in my head, I found myself in love again even though I didn't think that was possible. And I no longer actively hope that someone will set my ex on fire, which I think is an admirable sign of emotional uh, maturity. <laughs> However, if someone hands me a microphone, I will talk about him in front of strangers. <laughs> Most importantly, though, I can feel something other than the two emotional extremes I felt two years ago. I'm no longer angry and I'm no longer sad. Instead, I can look back on that year I spent with the man and be fond of the good things we shared by knowing, while knowing I don't necessarily want to experience them over again. And that's something I needed to learn from Taylor Swift, who, I hate to admit, is as basic as they come. She's not PJ Harvey threatening to make the man who jilted her regret the day she ever met her. She's not Liz Fair bragging about her talent of giving blowjobs. She doesn't even veer into that far into the depressive category in the way that, say, Jewel does with Foolish Games, which, pro tip, if you're ever super depressed, listen to Foolish Games, you'll realize how ridiculous you are. <laughs> it's ridiculously sad. 
Taylor Swift instead is average and calm and well, kind of boring. And that serves a purpose too. After the hurt and the anger and the misery comes that dull calm that assures you that in the end, it does get different and better. And, inev and that inevitability is perhaps the best of all. Thank you. Yes, Tyler Coates. You know, one time I was dumped by someone that I hadn't been dating that long, and I certainly wasn't engaged to, but it really hurt. And so there was one night I was feeling really bad about it, and I went to the video store, because this was 2002. I went to the video store, and I rented glitter. And I was feeling so bad that as I sat there and watched it, I actually had the thought of, this is my story. I totally get this. It is true. Sometimes we do. We need that Jewel song or that Mariah Carey biopic to show us how ridiculous we are. And that's it. That's our episode for this go-round. This has been the Soundtrack Series. And hey, I, I wanted to tell you that our next episode on September 29th will not be our last episode, but will be our last episode with Infinite Guest. So I'll tell you more about that on September 29th and where you can find us after September 29th. Hint, if you already subscribe, it's exactly where you've been finding us. But for now, let's keep it simple. You can find us where you always have, on Facebook, on Twitter, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, at infiniteguest.org, or in that dream you have right before you wake up. This has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>